0: have spoken. Well, TJ Van Garderen has spoken and today we are flipping the script. In this special episode of Put Your Socks On, TJ and I turn the microphone on Bobby, the star veteran, groundbreaking US pro and podium at the Tour de France, this week on Put Your Socks On. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. Today's guest just so happens to be my co-host, Bobby J. How's it feel to be in the hot seat? I hear you are up a little earlier than usual this
1: morning.
2: Yeah, yeah. I must admit, it's been a while since I've been on the other end of the microphone. That's for sure. But um, what the heck, I'm game. I've uh, yeah been around the sport for quite some time now, and have experienced some of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. But as I always say. You have to trim off the peaks and fill in the valleys. Maybe that will be the name of my book one day. Who knows? But I prefer to talk about the guys who are actually racing now instead of myself. So hope that you guys have some underhand softball questions for to me today. But um, yeah, TJ, talking about guys who are still racing. Let's kick this thing off. How's your uh, preparation for the re-kickoff of the 2020 season? I mean, heck, you should be in Tokyo lining up for the for the time trial right now
1: it's like i've lost all track of time with with this schedule change and i'm like what month is it i'm trying to like okay this is technically supposed to be june because i'm trying to think of it that way but i'm i guess if yeah if everything had gone as planned it would be tokyo time but you know the form's good i had to make a quick trip to europe due to all the travel restrictions and everything i got in no problem because i had the visa. But, um, yeah, it was just super unexpected surprise thing. But, yeah, everything's going smooth. Just spent some time in Andorra and getting ready for the tour.
2: You were in Andorra. You're back in Girona now. Uh, When do you kick off the season? Are you doing the races in France?
1: Yeah, I kick off the season with the Dauphine. But um, this is about you, Bobby. You're trying to flip the script again. Uh, uh, I was just about to say, I was like... Old habits die hard.
2: Old habits die hard. Anyway, come on.
1: Let's start off with just like, talk to me about Greenville. It kind of seems like the ex-pro U.S. rider retirement pad um, with you, George, and Christian all there. How'd you guys all land there?
2: Yeah, that's that's a funny story. George and Rich and Cappy obviously were the first guys to live here. I think Rich moved here first and then George. And we were thinking about when our oldest daughter, who now just graduated from, from high school... Four years ago, like on the 1st of January of 2016, my wife kind of rolls over after we had a good night out and says, hey, where are we going to live for the next four to eight years? And are we going to stay here? Are we going to go back and, and educate our kids in, in the U.S.? And we decided to come back to the U.S. And then there's the question of, hey, where in the U.S.? You know, we've lived in Lake Tahoe. We've lived in Northern California. Obviously, I'm from Colorado. But my wife's parents were a little bit older. They were I think 50 and 44 when my, my uh, wife was born. And she said, I want to be close to my parents because it's getting to that time. And I I thought we were going to move to where her parents are down in Charleston, South Carolina, because we'd always go down there for vacations. You know, when we'd fly back from Europe, either on spring break or Christmas break. But I realized that I'd learn how to play golf, go to the beach, and drink beer and watch college football, I would probably never ride my bike again because the biking down there isn't very good. So we started taking these little, I guess, excursions like around Charleston, not in Charleston. And, you know, we, we kind of found our way up here to Greenville. And I knew that George lived here. I was kind of aware that Christian was moving here or had just moved here. But I was very apprehensive about moving to a town with two guys that I grew up with that did the same thing as, as I did. So we'd come up and I'd I'd meet my buddy Thomas Craven. The first time we came up it was just for like an afternoon, had lunch with him and his wife and then went back to Charleston. The next trip we came up for like 2 days, we spent the night. The next day we uh, the next time we came, we actually came for like a long weekend and toured the schools. And then and only then did I actually call George and Christian and I invited them out to dinner. And halfway through the dinner, I asked them guys, would you mind if I moved here? And that's when they just let loose on me. They're like, you, you've been up here three or four times. We knew it. You didn't even call us. Like, what the heck is up with that? And the bottom line was, I just wanted it to be our decision to move up here and not influenced by those two. And let me tell you, I, it is, it is absolutely uh, a great place to live. I get to ride with George and Christian. Our kids play together. Our wives get along. So yeah, that's that's how we wound up here. It wasn't really ex- our plan that that I would kind of get back into cycling again because when I moved up here, I was what ten years, eight nine years removed from the sport of cycling. And you know what happens when you're sitting in the car and on the on the scooter with the guys behind you? You're not working out and you're gaining weight. So when I got when I first moved here. July 14th of 2016, I was totally out of shape and Christian and George, in my opinion, never really retired. I mean, they're just as fit as they were when they were pros. So it was a tough, I'd say two, two and a half years of living here and just going out with those guys and just getting pummeled. And in the last year and a half, I kind of started to take on some of my own coaching uh, techniques. And now, now I feel more comfortable riding with those guys, but They're still very, very active.
1: Yeah, well, it looks like you guys are crushing the retirement game down there. I mean, every time I see posts, it looks like you guys are just always having a ton of fun riding together. And I've been to Greenville a few times for Georgia's Fondo. Hopefully it happens again this year with the COVID thing, but um, that's a great town. And uh,
2: the the Grand Fondo was actually the kind of carrot when I first moved here. And I was totally out of shape and it was hot as heck. It was the middle of the summer. I was overweight, but they kept dangling that carrot in front of me. They were like, come on, Bobby J, you, g- you got to get fit for the Fonda. And I had like an old bike that I had in my garage since like the Saxo Bank days. I had an old kit, old helmet. Like I didn't really have any new stuff. And I'd show up with these guys that would have the top of the line bicycles and clothing and just look like a million bucks. And I look like a, a guy out of a dime store. And that was enough uh to get me going. But I'll never forget when I crossed the finish line of that first Grand Fondo uh, up, in, up at Hotel Domestique in 2016, I crossed the line and Richie Incafi, who's like my oldest friend in cycling, was, you know, he didn't ride with us because he promotes the thing. And I pulled over and I gave him the biggest hug. And I just said, thank you. I totally want to get back into this again. It was one of those experiences that just said, you know what? You need to start riding your bike more. So Thanks to uh, Rich and George and all the people at the Hincapie Grand Fondo for motivating this old man to to get back on the bike.
1: Yeah, let's hope uh, let's hope the hotel and the um, and the fondo are able to survive this COVID thing because I want to get back there and do it again myself. Let's see, you kind of mentioned a little bit about your old coaching techniques, and that kind of led into my next question. So you, you have like some hall of fame stats, you know, third in the tour, Olympic medal, the one Perry Nice, which in my opinion is the hardest week long race that there is out there to win that. You have to be good at everything. And I remember when we were on BMC, you told me something that shocked me. You said that you had never won a pro race. You'd never like crossed the line, hands in the air. You've won time trials, you've won GC, but you've never won like a road stage. And to me, I was thinking, like, how can someone with these Hall of Fame stats never have actually crossed the line with his hands in the air? That, would, that just baffled my mind. And um, I was kind of thinking, like, you seem like a very analytical person. And I think that's part of what, what made you a great cyclist is that you were very, by the book, You you did your numbers, you did your workouts. If it said five hours, you did that on the nose. You never went under. However... I'm wondering if you, looking back at your career, if you would have taken more of an impulsive, more instinctive approach and just kind of threw caution to the wind every now and then, do you think that would have helped you just be more aggressive and maybe go for the, go for that just big victory, hands in the air salute thing? Or do you think that the way you did it was kind of the way you had to do it? Or, or give, give me a little insight with that. Well, first off, I did
2: get to put my hands in the air for the only time as a professional in Europe in 1997 in the morning stage of the Route de Sud. And so so one time I got to do that, but that was pretty funny. We were in a, it was the preparatory race before the tour, a break of 20 guys got off. I jumped them with like 2k to go. We had Ekimov in the uh in the breakaway, so I I just kind of uh, he was one of my heroes at that time, and I just said, I'm going to I'm going out fox the fox here. So I hit him with like a K, K and a half to go, and I just barely held off for the win. And then in the afternoon was the time trial, and I won the time trial. So my first two victories over in Europe were actually two in one day. And unfortunately, that, that was about it. But um, to get back to your question, I definitely overanalyzed some situations, but I always had the time trial in my back pocket. So I would always contribute a little bit more than I probably should have in the the breakaway, in the race itself, because I was just like, I want to get to that time trial and that's where I can make the difference. And overanalysis is paralysis for sure. I wish I had that attitude, that confidence, that aggressiveness, that style to be like a Philippe Gilbert and just be Absolutely tactically perfect and like a sniper when it came to it. But I just didn't have that ability. And how many times did I come to a finish and finish second, third, fourth, or fifth in a group of six? Quite often. Um, I just did not have the fast twitch sprinting muscles that it took to do that. And I think that tactically, um, back then, I think I'm much better now because it's easier to say it than to actually do it. But Yeah, I was not that kind of, kind of guy. Um, I was not the kind of guy that focused on winning is the only thing. I always looked at a race as podium is the goal. Fourth, that sucks. I didn't necessarily have to win to be happy. You know, second and third was good enough. But if, if I was off the podium, then it really wasn't, you know, I, I felt that I could have done better. That's just my character. If I knew then what I knew now. Maybe I would throw caution to the wind a little bit more, and maybe I was a, a little bit too timid at the you know the the right times, and um, I can't change that. That's who I was, and I I try to coach better to to allow guys to to make those instinctive decisions. But yeah, I guess it was um, a confidence issue more than anything.
1: That was going to be my next question: is um, is as a coach? I know that you like to be. Analytical and I know how I know your methodical approach to coaching, and that's exactly how I train. I'm I'm very methodical about things, but yeah, what would you tell your athlete to kind of coach in that sort of more instinctive, impulsive, explosive sort of every now and then you just gotta forget everything and just cross the fucking line first sort of mentality? Absolutely.
2: I mean, confidence is is the number one thing, and I always say a happy rider is a good rider. And when you're happy you allow yourself to relax and you see the race through a different lens. When you're a little bit stressed, when you're under pressure, if you're not sure of yourself, you know, you're, you're always kind of on the back foot or with the parking brake a little bit engaged. So with, with the athletes, I, I mean, I don't coach the same way that I coach coach 10 years ago or five years ago, or even six months ago, the sport is constantly evolving, constantly changing. And But that mentality, that positive mental mindset and that focus and that ability to be happy, not just on the bike, but like in your life, as far as being a father, as far as being a husband or a spouse, it it, it really makes the difference. So yes, I, I am quite analytical. I think I've definitely learned from being a little bit too much so from time to time. But in training, I think you need to cross the T's and dot the I's. But in the races, that's where you kind of need to, you know, of course, we want you to have your, your power meter uh, head unit on so that we can look at it afterwards, but not really be governed by that as much as you are in the training. I mean, you want to know that that should give you the confidence to go into those races feeling that you're capable of doing what you want to do, but it definitely shouldn't be the end all of, of what you do in the race, because so much to the race is that moment, that spontaneous moment, that spidey sense that says now is the time, even, even if it's not really tactically, you know, by the book time. But yeah, that's easier to say now than, than back then when you had, you know, when you're just kind of trying to be a little bit conservative.
1: Yeah, yeah. And like I said, I'm not saying that as a slight because um I mentioned some of your stats and like to me, I would trade Palmares with you any any day of the week. Like, but it just came as a shock because I'm like, man, these are Hall of Fame numbers. And to not put your hands in the air, like that just seemed uh it almost seemed I almost thought you were joking when you told me that. And but uh but yeah, I mean I I I actually have the same, a lot of the same mentality as you oftentimes. It's like Stay comfortable. Stay in the group. Wait for the TT. And I, you know, sometimes I wish I'd have been more impulsive myself. But um, I'm,
0: I'm interested to to ask TJ, like very insightful question there, and, and interesting. And and I mean, you just said it yourself, and I, I I do a little bit the same. Look at you two guys occasionally. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of similarities there. I'm wondering uh, you're very you're very self aware right now, and and I'm wondering if you're changing the way that you race. I mean, we saw a bit of that last year, I feel like, are you trying to liberate your style a little bit in the way that you race and and sort of chase those those glory moments of the hands in the air?
1: I still always have the threat of the TT with me, but I think it's all it's a lot of the way this team is structured, which is just a lot different than it has been in the past, where on BMC, we'd go in with one leader, maybe a backup leader, and we'd always try to kind of sew the group together and make sure that everything's in a nice, neat little package and feed us into the climb, feed us into the time trial. And on this team, it seems like on education first, it seems more like we come in with a lot of different goals and guys go for the breakaway, guys go for GC. And we also have more aggressive tactics to kind of open the race up. And they know that, oh, we can't let this guy up the road because he's a threat here and there. And it it just makes for a more aggressive style, which is Kind of a lot more fun.
0: And Bobby, I'm wondering too, I know you sat in the car for many years as a director. you've obviously been an expert coach, and listening to both of you now, I wonder, how would you race? How would you direct a team now? Did you and when you did direct a team, were you more aggressive, or did you adhere to those principles and that style that you had raced with for so long?
2: Again, I would say, do as I say, not as I do. And <laughs> um, I was never a first director, and that was for a reason because i I am too emotional i i get I get into it um I don't have that that filter that like Stephen deyonga has that we had on our podcast a few weeks ago. I mean he's just so calm, cool, and calculated. That was the only time, and it is the only time that i I feel like I'm in the race, so that's not a good mentality to have when you're behind the wheel of the car. You need to be able to disconnect from that so that, that being said, yeah, I, I prefer to be in the second car, not grab that race radio, which we, we have in the second cars as well, or watch the race from TV because then you can really study. And then once you can overlay what you saw on TV with the rider's power file, you can really take a lot out of that race file as far as the training that that particular rider needs to do. But it's, it's, it's a difficult disconnect between, you know, being in the race where those guys, like you, TJ, are pushing the pedals, we can't feel what you feel. We, we see maybe something that you can't see when your heart rate is pinned. And that, that's something that I, you know, just towards the end of my career when the race radios came out, was that an issue? But I didn't have a race radio in 1998. I didn't have a race radio in the 2004 uh, time trial in Athens. It was more like you just made those decisions on your own instead of having somebody, you know, like a coach like myself screaming in your ear to do X, Y, and Z.
1: You know, I do remember you telling me one thing when we were working on BMC together. It was an approach that I definitely took. I remember thinking that during the 2014 Pro Challenge when, uh, when we were on Monarch Mountain. You said if a rider is not confident, he might try to do these like attacks, like attack and then kind of look back and see what's happened. He said, he said, you, you don't don't ever do multiple attacks. If you're good, it just takes one. And uh, and I remember that's kind of how Sky rode. Like they didn't they didn't do like attack, attack, attack. They just did one big one. And that was all they needed. Um, and that was kind of the approach. I remember on Monarch Mountain, Tom Danielson was kind of doing these little attacks. and. And, I, and then I was just like, I, I had your voice in my ear. I was like, okay, find the moment and just do one. And that was kind of the, um, I don't know, that, that resonated with me. Yeah, it's
2: like you know playing, playing poker. Um, there's a lot of tells. And when you see a guy take four or five pedal strokes and then look behind him, I, I'm sorry, that's, that's not 100% commitment. Those guys that, that hit it and never look back those are the guys that you need to worry about. That's, that's the serious one. That's the all in one. And I know some of these guys play these little, you know, fake attacks, fakey do's, as I call them, uh, just to kind of test the waters. But that to me is a person just trying to gain some, some morale, some confidence that, that he is good. Because TJ, that, that's, that's the biggest question when you get to a bottom of a climb. Very rarely are you like, okay, I'm going, I'm going to drop everybody and do X, Y, and Z. There's always like, wait a second, did I eat enough? Did I drink enough? Did I spin my legs enough in that valley? Did I go, you know, was I sitting on the wheel? Was I conserving my energy? And halfway, you know, a quarter up the climb, those things are going through your head. And then for that next quarter, it's kind of sinking in where you are and where the other people are. And then from there to the top, you know, you kind of have what you have. You know, I didn't, make those crazy attacks very often, but when when I see a guy look back, most of the time he's doomed because hey man, you've committed. You're all in. What does it matter what's behind you? You know, it's it's okay every once in a while to look in the, the rear view mirror of a car, but the most important thing is looking through the front windscreen. And that's what matters is coming at you. Like I said, it's easier to say now than to do back then. So uh I'm glad that you listened to that. I mean that's that's the beautiful thing about being a mentor, being a coach, being a friend is you never know what's going to stick with an individual. And I I think that's where my coaching philosophy comes from is I take bits and bobs from hundreds of people. And those little mantras, like, like you just mentioned, that's, that's kind of my style. And, you know, now being older and hopefully wiser, I'm not sure I would have listened to the things that I say, you know, 20 years ago, or, you know, 15 years ago or whenever I was racing.
0: TJ, like Bobby raised an interesting point there. And, and as someone who's never even been in a race, you know, of the caliber of the Tour de France, of Paris or anything like that, I'm interested to know now when it's on that, when you're on that final climb, who are the guys, who are the guys that, that, that do those dummy attacks? And then who are the guys that when they go, you know, they're going hell for leather to the end, whether they blow up or not.
1: So yeah, when, when Froome goes, you know that he means it. He doesn't he doesn't uh he doesn't mess around. Some other guys they like to play games and you know, maybe they kinda of do an attack, look back, see who's there, do another one. And you can kind of always you always kind of know that they're gonna sit up and you can claw back on. But Froome, yeah, when he goes, it's he's going he plays for keeps. So Bobby, we just the Armstrong duck just came out and um My sort of biggest takeaway of it was so we kind of realized what that cycling had this past and we're getting over that. And, you know, I kind of came in the sport kind of like just after, you know, the biological passport and all this stuff. And, um, and I guess, I guess we, we kind of figured out the right way to move forward with the sport. But I guess I think that what this sport is struggling with right now is. What to do with the past? and you know Armstrong alluded to that at the end of his documentary about you know he talked about kantani and, um, and you know the mental health issues he was dealing with and I, and I actually kind of wanted to get your take on this because you had to deal with with some new policy that you that the team you were working for when you were on Sky. they, they kind of basically brought everybody in and said, look, if you have a past, come in that we can fire you. And if you lie to us, we'll find out, we'll fire you and probably sue you. So if I'm in your shoes, I really don't like my set of options. Can you can you speak to what that situation was like? Well, let me start
2: with the first part. Yes, what my biggest takeaway from the documentary was, okay, this this is the end. This is it. Like this is enough, you know, talking about our generation because what really matters and i felt kind of guilty about that you know with with all of us old guys being on there is the, the spotlight should be on you guys not on us what what's done is done we won't be able to change that and i don't think that any one of you guys wants to flick on a tv a tv series a internet column or open a magazine and read about us you guys want to read about you and that's what i feel like yes the past is the past, and this to me was kind of like the final nail like it's over let's move forward. I think that that documentary kind of brought to light a little bit of the the issues that we faced that you know there was there was a problem before our generation was there, and you know we tried to many of us tried to to right that wrong and Become you know better influencers of the sport like like a you know a recovering alcoholic or somebody that comes out of jail and finds God is like just don't make the same mistakes that we made. So for me, that's it. I never really want to talk about that again. I don't think we need to talk about it again because the story is you guys, and you know guys are still making some mistakes. But I I have a hundred percent confidence, and I get asked, asked this a lot. The, the sport is the cleanest it's ever been and in my opinion the cleanest sport out there
1: i, I totally agree uh, look i um i'm not trying to drudge up uh, any any sort of past issues right now my biggest question was more about the treatment of the past because it has to be dealt with in a delicate way because another name that kind of comes to mind was uh was Frank Vandenbroek, and he was a teammate of- and I just I just feel like a lot of these people have been vilified. And you know, like like I was alluding to the situation with Yvonne Sky. I understand Sky's policy and why they did that because they were trying to, you know, cultivate, you know, an image. But um, I was kind of more like, you know, you, you have to you have to put a line and move forward, but I also feel like some some things need to just be dealt with in a more delicate way otherwise you get you know situations like like vandenbroek and Pintani. And, and i just uh, and and that was like kind of the biggest takeaway with the with the lance documentary when he was talking about himself and jan ulrich and i was just um i don't know it kind of left me thinking like like wow this is i think we've done a really good job in the sport moving forward but i don't think we've done a good enough job just kind of addressing what, what had gone on?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a really difficult topic, right? You got 50% of the people that want to hear it and 50% of the people that, that don't want to hear it. That was not easy for me. But, you know, when my wife found out that I was doping back in 1998, she kind of pulled me aside and said, if this ever happens again, we're through. And we weren't even married yet. We were just engaged and we were planning on getting married in October. So, you know, again, being young, and I look, you know, when you're 27, you don't feel like you're young. But when you're 49, you look back at a 27 year old, and you're like, man, he's young. And, you know, the, the influencers that we had around us, and, you know, the lack of rules or enforcement of those rules, definitely wore you down. And, you know, we made our mistakes. And my wife told me back then, she said, this isn't over. One day or another, you're going to have to face this. And when I was sitting at home in Philadelphia in, what was that, 2012, uh, November of 2000, October of 2012, and I read what Dave had said on the internet about everybody coming in and forced, uh, well, asked to sign this piece of paper. And right then and there, I knew I was missing our wedding anniversary because our wedding anniversary is on the 17th of October. I'd have to fly over there on like the 15th and then come back on the 20th or something like that. And I kind of looked at my wife and I said, "Um, Well, I'm not going over there and missing our anniversary to get fired. And she, I turned around expecting, you know, some response and just deadpan. She looked at me and reminded me of the fact. She goes, I told you way back then that you were not. Done with this. You are going. I don't care if it's your birthday, Christmas, whatever you are going and you're going to deal with this. So yeah, I got on the plane, landed in London, took a cab to the hotel. And when I walked in, I knew what I was going to do. We had just won the Tour de France with Bradley Wiggins. It should have been a party from the moment we stepped in that hotel, but it was really like a funeral. And very soon after that, we we had the meeting with Dave. Then I pulled him aside and said, "Hey, I'll I'll be the first to go." And you know, said what I said to him. And um, a part of me was hoping that he would reevaluate that zero tolerance policy and know the way that I had worked with the team. So part of me was hoping that 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 wasn't the end of my tenure there but sure enough it was and it was very difficult and I would not change that decision I made because if it was if I was at all skeptical that riders on that team were doing bad things or that organization was not on the up and up there's no way I would have said anything but I respected that organization and the riders and you know I was coaching Chris Groome and Richie Ford at the time and my biggest thing That I said to myself was, I don't want these guys because I knew that Chris was going to win the tour. Maybe not that next year, but I knew he was going to win the tour. I knew that Richie was going to be, you know, who he is today. And I said, I need to step away because I don't want my past to influence their future. And I'm glad I did that. And you know, they've gone on to to great things, and that team has gone on to great things. It was my dream job. I, I miss those guys. Um, immensely, it was a two-year period in my life that will change me forever. But I guarantee you, if if any other team that I was working for asked me up until that point, um, asked me that same question, it, you wouldn't have gotten the same answer. So it was out of respect for that organization and the future crop of riders, where um, I had to respect their their decision. There
0: was there. A bit of liberation, Bobby, when you were able to not, I guess, like not finally come clean, right? Like, um, but you know, you being able to, to accept responsibility for that. And then in essence, take a big step, like help the sport, take a big step in moving forward, in moving forward in acknowledging its past in taking responsibility for that.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that was the whole point. I didn't do it for myself because I knew I'm not racing anymore, but I did, somebody had pulled me aside and said, Hey, like all these guys from, you know, the, the reason decision have made these statements. You're not involved in that, but you only have one chance. And I looked at it right then and there is, you know, I, I need to, I, I can't live a lie forever. And yeah, that was, that you know, that, that was was part of it. You just buried those those things. And once you stopped doing those things, you felt that, you know, hey, I'm doing it the right way now. I don't really have to worry about, you know, what I did. But, you know, sorry, kids, that's, that's not the truth. You know, those things live with you for, for a long time. Liberating, not so much, but it was the right thing to do, I hope. I know that it wasn't easy to make those calls to... My close friends, my family, and and tell them the truth. Um, especially my father, who was there, who got me into cycling. That was probably the toughest call that I had to make. A lot of the other people kind of understood the generation that I was in, but it, it, it wasn't easy. And to this day, you know, y- you have to face these, um, you know, your 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 past. But I just, from the moment that I stopped doing those things. I said, I'm going to try to be the inspiration to the younger guys not to make those decisions. And even before I was coaching, I was making those gestures um, to, to the younger riders and making sure that no one around me was, was doing that sort of thing. And you know, there were guys that slipped through the cracks, no doubt. I mean, one of my teammates in, in 2006 was, was caught up in something that probably affected me a lot more than what I did because by that time it was past history and and it came out again and that that wasn't a fun situation to realize that guys that um you know you you regarded as brothers were were making these decisions you know behind your back but you know it's that's that's enough of
1: that as far as I'm concerned you know what i what i'll say is um is that you have been an inspiration to a lot of people I can attest to me. I know Froom. I know Richie. I know, uh, Larry Warbass. And you've been an incredible inspiration. And, um, I didn't mean to, to bring this up to make you uncomfortable or to make you, um, or to make you relive anything. I just, um, I guess, like I said, that was my biggest takeaway from the Armstrong documentary was that um, there it seemed like there were a lot of people from that era that I regard as very good people that that I guess they, I don't think we dealt with it in the right way because like I like alluded to Pintani and Vandenbroek and now Jan Ulrich. And I just think that something needed to be done. I mean, especially in this, um, in this era that we're in, where we're, Addressing and recognizing, you know, the mental health aspect of of people, and it's it seems like a lot of people went down a pretty dark road as a result of all of this. And I think that that's just kind of the way that we've dealt with it. And I don't know. To me, that that was that kind of didn't it it sat in a weird way with me. With when I got to the end of that Lance documentary, and that was my biggest takeaway was from it was that. We need to do a better job of, of addressing not not just rehashing everything that happened, but addressing what how do we deal with 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 some of these some of these players who actually who actually have the potential to be inspirational like you have been to a lot of people.
0: And you you raise a good an interesting point there, TJ, about the mental health element. And I I am a big proponent. You know, like I went through my own struggles with addiction with. With mental health issues, when I stopped racing, both the first time, although unrecognised, and then the second time around, and 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 um, Bobby, you and I have spoken about transitioning out of the sport with Geroy Tui, and and I think what's going on, what the Lance doc for me, talking to you, Bobby, what what this stuff brings to the surface for me is like, cycling has a problem no longer with doping; it had a problem. Cycling has a problem with looking after its athletes. And addressing the root of the problem and and what i mean by that is it's like okay we have a sport that's back in the day we have a history instead of addressing the history they just burn the surface off they cauterize the wound they 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 try and raise the names that bubbled up to the top instead of getting to the root of the problem and as a result they destroy a series of lives and don't necessarily address the problem and and that's why it's still lingering Right, that's why in fucking what year are we in? Twenty twenty. There's a there's a documentary about Lance Armstrong. You know, like we should have moved on from that a long time ago. The sport should have dealt with that, and I think that the sport hasn't. And I think that's a big issue: is how do we like we don't look at athletes as human beings. We don't look at these sporting stars as human beings. And granted, they should be held to a certain account. We want our sports stars to be role models, and and they should be, but. They're not just, they don't just become that. And, you know, you have like, there has to be a, there has to be an accountability or like a, a recognition that, you know, we as the fans, but also to the sport needs to create an environment where, you know, being a good human being, where all of these, you know, a system in place that, that don't let kids off track. Because, you know, I know for me, like, I never doped, I was never in a position to. And certainly when I came back and raced, um, there was like, it was something that, that and, and even in my, when I first turned pro that I never, I was like, I don't, I don't, I'm fortunate enough that I can go to university. I have these other opportunities, right? But when I was like, before I was a pro, when I was 16, 17, desperate to be as good as possible, I've got no idea what I would have done if that person came along that you trusted. If my coach that had coached me for my entire life, since I was a nine-year-old kid turned around one day and was like, here's what you got to do. I don't know if I would have said no right and that's that's i think the issue that we're not really we're not really looking at it from that perspective and it's certainly not excusing what people have done right but it's also being like what's the best most constructive way to move forward what can we learn from this and i think that for me is a big part that i still see going on you still see young kids who never quite take that top step maybe but dedicate their lives to it and they've got no money and they've got you know no education because they've sacrificed it all for the sport and then and then and then they're thrown out you know and and nobody nobody knocks on their door nobody you know sends them a message and goes hey i'm i'm going to help you transition you're not really aware of what's going to happen to you like you know i'm going to help you find a job i'm going to help you do this sort of stuff and i think that that's a conversation that that we need to be having coming out of this out of this um era i mean we've well and truly come out of it but yeah, I feel that there needs to be a bigger conversation had around that side of things rather than just rehashing these guys took drugs. You know, I think everyone's well aware of that now and it's like, well, what, what can we do about it?
2: Well, I'm interested, TJ, because obviously when you first got into the sport compared to now, you know, things were going, you know, down a different path. But now I feel I'm, I'm interested to hear what are the concerns of the writers in the Peloton these days, because hopefully, you know, the whole, do I dope? Do I don't dope is totally out of the question. That's not even a a topic of conversation anymore. But what are the things that I guess concern you guys or bother you guys? Is there, is there anything that you can put your, your finger on that is kind of like that, that buzzword that maybe doping was, you know, back in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands?
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think nowadays there's there's probably a lot more emphasis on on weight, you know, power to weight ratio, you know, altitude or just just kind of just a genuine or just more of a general curiosity on what your competitors are doing. Not necessarily doping wise, but just just where they are, what they're doing, how they're training, what they're eating, what new techniques they're, they're doing like any, I don't know, but probably just anything that in any sport, um, you know, just to get kind of a mental edge, you know, like, I think a lot of teams like to be really secretive about what they're doing, even just to have the, the facade of, yeah, we're doing something different. That's going to be better than you. And, can I, can I give
2: you, can I give you a
1: piece of advice there, TJ?
2: And this is, this is what absolutely. Changed my career around in the, the end of two thousand three when I when I signed for Bjorn Reese at CSC for twenty five thousand euros was my contract and I was four years out of being on the podium of the Tour de France is be do not care do not give one thought to what the other guys are doing because it'll drive you crazy that's what drove me crazy from you know, 1999 to 2003 is I was always, hey, what are these guys doing? What are they doing? What do they got? You know, what chances are they taking? And it it was paralyzing. It was absolutely riding around with a handbrake on the entire time. And then when I went to, to CSC, I, I I had no contract. I was done. I was going to have to retire in 2003 until Bjarna, you know, gave me the opportunity for next to nothing. But I just said, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to concentrate on what I need to do. And luckily I found a team with a lot of great friends and I started to have fun again. And I don't know if it was because English was the official language of CSC back then. And I had been on foreign teams where I was, you know, I could communicate, but not in my native tongue. And it, it, it was frustrating. But to you and to everyone in the peloton that thinks the way you you think or, you know, say what you just said, man, it doesn't matter. Just be you do what you can do. Stop looking over the fence. Because I tell you, from my experience, it it is absolutely difficult. But once you click that off and say, I don't care what so and so is doing, or this team or that team is doing, I'm going to concentrate on what I can do. And I'm going to have fun. And man, that parking brake just clicked all the way down, and I was able to have two, two, two and a half years of the best year of my career right at the end. And I wish I would have said that to myself back in nineteen ninety nine, but times were different. Times were different.
0: I have a question for both of you guys, TJ. You know, you've been the rising star of of the sport of of U.S. cycling for a long time now. You've had incredible results, but you've never quite taken that you know, that step that everyone had for you, right? You've worn an insane amount of pressure as a result of that. Bobby, I went for a ride with you in Patagonia in the southern borderlands of um, of uh, Arizona at the at the end of last year and we were riding along incredible gravel road kind of out in the middle of, of the desert and you turned to me and you said, man, I wish I had discovered riding my bike in this way 20 years ago and it was us just out on a gravel road. And and so TJ, you first, I'm knowing like Bobby, you know, you said that to me, you had this kind of this moment where, where your perception of the bike had changed and TJ knowing what you've been through and, and knowing you're still in it and you're still at the highest level of the sport. I'm wondering if you've had a moment where you've, I, I guess like liberated yourself or you've sort of changed your perspective on the sport, on the bike, and you've been able to kind of find your spot in the sport.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it kind of goes back to what Bobby was saying, like uh, before it was it was like you'd always try to reach the next level, next level, next level. You now you got a couple of top fives in the tour, okay, now it's podium or bust, or you know I gotta win uh, a world tour stage race, like a week-long race, or you know it's a failure. and I've kind of stopped looking at things in terms of boxes between you know success and failure, and it's more. Or try to look at it in terms of like just do the best you can do, you know and, and because I think it was it was so easy to once you did not achieve what you set out to achieve in your mind was success that you would almost give up and look towards the next the next race or the next week or the next event, and so it was like if I would crash or, so, or something would happen in a race rather than take whatever opportunity was was given to me for the rest of that race, I would just kind of ride at the back and finish the race until until I could start again with when, when everyone's clock's at zero. And I think I, I missed out on a lot of opportunities by doing it that way, um, where I could have, you know, thrown caution to the wind and gone for stages or ridden more aggressively or, or done whatever I could. So, I mean, I think, yeah, so I, I think now I just, you just have to kind of put the results aside and do the best you can wherever you can. And then whatever happens, happens.
0: And Bobby, how about you, you know, to, to kind of talk about that, that experience that, you know, that you had out in the, in the Arizona desert, like I'm interested to, to hear and, and, and know what your perspective on just simply riding a bike is now, how has it changed? How do you, how does the bike fit into your life? now compared to when you were a pro when it was you were trying to 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 win olympic gold medals you were trying to you know win win stage races
2: i think the biggest difference is i you know retired in 2008 and it's 2020 and you have to find new motivations you know i i'm not competitive anymore i don't like to suffer but riding the bike i mean i got up this morning and i was Decide. I've heard a lot about people doing the dawn patrol rides, you know, going out in the morning and I've got the lights and everything like that. I was up anyway, because you guys had me all nervous about this podcast. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go riding. And it was so great. No music, nobody riding with me, a few people on Paris mountain, but, but not not much traffic. And it was just one of those moments where, you know, the colors look a little bit more vibrant. The air has a different odor to it. It was just, I don't know. It's maybe because there's there's no pressure, and I do it for fun, um, and it's just that that overall feeling of of being able to pedal my bike because that was one thing that I let go once I switched over to coaching and and managing was I wasn't getting that endorphin release that I got when I was racing, and a lot of the times you had that same adrenaline because you were behind the wheel of a car or you were driving the scooter with you know, professional cyclist behind you. And you got back from that event and you were exhausted mentally, but you didn't have that same endorphin release that you had when you were, when you were racing. So now for me, it's just about the participation and not the pace. But back then, yeah, it was every day jumping on the scale in the morning, make sure that you're hydrated, make sure that you're fueled, going out, making sure that your, your SRM is paired. Doing the the workout, coming back, doing your recovery, stretching, taking a nap. And it 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 wears on you for sure. Um, especially when you're when you're single and especially before you have kids. You know, you don't have any other distraction or diversion from that grind. But that's part of it. I mean, you're a professional athlete for a reason. Like that is your job. You are making sacrifices. But when the sacrifices that you make are not being repaid in either your overall pleasure of the sport or your results, that's where it gets tricky. Because then you feel like you're doing it for another reason. You're doing it for a paycheck. You're doing it for acceptance from your, your, your community. But man, when you do it for yourself and you're out there just riding your bike, and as a personal story, that feeling that I had this morning I had that very few times when I was racing, but one time in particular that I can definitely recall was during the time trial in Athens in 2004. It was 44 kilometers, 11K out, 11K back, 11K out, 11K back. And I did, decided not to take a radio because I didn't have um, my normal guy speaking in the radio. I wish I would have because it was Jim Miller and I would have loved to hear what he said because he's a phenomenal coach and motivator. but. On and I had no idea the split times. And I got to the turnaround with the final leg to go, so 33 kilometers into it. And people talk about being in the zone or being in the moment. And when I turned around at absolute maximum effort, all of a sudden, the the way that the sun hit the water and glimmered off the mountains, because yeah, I had the sea to my left and the mountains to the to my right. I just sat there and for a second I said, don't forget this feeling. This is what it feels like to be in the zone in the Olympics. And all of a sudden I snapped out of it because I'm like, what am I doing? I'm sitting here daydreaming like I need to hit the gas here because that was my pacing strategy was to really hump it in that last section. And when I crossed the finish line and I had the second best time um, behind Ekimov, I was like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking, sitting there daydreaming, talking to myself in my own head, talking about being in the zone or enjoying the moment. And then I eventually finished third and then upgraded second. But that moment there was probably my most cherished moment of, of my cycling career, was being in that moment and realizing that you're in that moment and still performing. So that's, that's what I go for now is that moment. And I used to get it when I was cross training in, in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, running the trails, all of a sudden I'd feel like a deer. And there was other times where I felt like I was, you know, running in quicksand, but that's, that's what you have to keep in mind. And as a professional cyclist, you're chronically fatigued, you're chronically analyzing your sensations but sometimes, man, just get on the gravel or just go walk on the beach or do something and just live in the moment. Because before you know it, everybody has an end of their career. And if you can have even one day like that during your career, you, you had a
1: successful career.
0: What about you, TJ? Have you had any moments like that that you can, that you can recall on like a, a distinct race or, or moment out riding?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned one of them when we the last time we did this podcast, but uh, it it definitely was an interesting time during the uh, the COVID uh, lockdown when um, when all the racing was was canceled and we had no idea when our next event was going to be. I was still riding outside, but um, you know, I had no idea what I was working towards. And I was just going out and just enjoying being on the bike. I, you know, I'd, I'd explore some dirt roads, do some roads that I had never even done before in a place that I had trained you know, for years. For almost a decade, I've been going to the same training spot, and I was actually discovering new roads. And it was funny. I, every now and then, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to hit this climb. I'm going to give it a little gas, and I'm going to kind of open up the throttle a little bit. And it was almost like I couldn't get myself to hurt. I'd get like a quarter of the way up the climb and I'd be like, why am I doing this? Like, I don't want to hurt right now. Like, I'm just, I was going to cruise. And I was enjoying, I was like out for like five, six hours, you know, sometimes four, sometimes three, it didn't matter. I was staying in shape, but not race fit. Yeah, it was amazing how much you, I loved being on the bike, but how much I hated getting myself to hurt. Once the race schedule came out and they said, okay, here's, here are the dates, here are the times, then it was like a complete mind shift. It was, and it was like, okay, now I can do intervals. Now I can hurt myself. Now I can do threshold. Now I can do my over-unders and, and really um, give it some stick and be motivated. But without that carrot of racing, it was almost impossible for me to like, hurt myself. It was weird. <laughs>
0: Yeah, welcome to the club, man.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm not. I'm not one to hurt nowadays. That's for sure. That's for sure. Bobby and I are very much in agreeance on that, mate. It's been a pleasure. This has been um, a really, really good conversation. And TJ, some great questions there. I Appreciate you coming on the show and and giving it to us. And, and Bobby,
1: uh, Bobby, I um, I know I probably made you uncomfortable, and I did not want to. I uh, I honestly. Was, was genuinely curious and concerned about, you know, some of the things that were on my mind and I, I appreciate you um, answering the questions and, um, and it's been great catching up to, with you guys, both, both of you guys. Well, now you
2: know why I was up at uh, four o'clock this morning thinking about this whole thing because I, I, knew, I knew the softball, underhand softball pitches wouldn't be coming my way too much, but um,
1: I hope I answered your question as well as I could. Yeah, well, I I really appreciate it and and I wish you guys all the best.
0: Bobby, before we end, actually, you let slip uh, before the show we started recording that you have held on to your 1998 tour diary or daily planner type uh, diary that you have. I want to hear page, read us a page from nine days before the tour.
2: Yeah, I'm a bit of a pack rat when it comes to training diaries and memorabilia and stuff like that. And in preparation for this podcast, kind of opened up a box that has been closed for quite a while. I recently, a couple of years ago, I organized everything so it was all in one place. And I said, huh, I wonder what I was thinking back in before the tour of 1998. And sure enough, I opened up the box and the first thing I pulled out was my Frank Franklin Daily planner that my mom had given me every Christmas she would give me like the new inserts for the next year, and that kind of became my planner and little place to take notes and whatnot so i don't know if anyone's interested, but I think young writers out there if if they have a chance to write things down, set goals, standards, whatever it is 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 definitely worthwhile. I know that writing in a you know, with pen and paper is kind of a lost art these days, but, uh, this was my July, 1998 master task list. So, uh, bear with me here. So it's got a little place for personal business, monthly goals, etc. So my personal goals was stay healthy and injury-free, give 110% on and off the bike, relax and focus, eat right, hydrate and stretch, don't waste energy, be thankful to those supporting you, fulfill goals. This is kind of personal. I said, be the eagle, because I've always kind of thought that my spirit animal was was the eagle. Be the eagle. Uh, Rise higher and higher. Pay attention to details. Focus on recovery and sleep and no excuses. And my monthly goals was top 10 in the Tour de France, stage win in the Tour de France. And have my best Tour de France yet, which was only my second tour. So, um, you know, chances were I was gonna come pretty close to that. Also, d- over to the side, on July the 3rd, which was nine days before the Tour de France, I wrote something that kind of surprised myself um, going back, what, 22 years. So, this is it. Nine days until the start of the tour, and things are looking up. I did a test with Max. And that's Max Testa. And it was the best one all year. Things are coming together just in time, and I am excited. The tour is here again, and it's time to shine. I have had some challenging times recently, but it will all be worth it when I feel great in the tour. I have to stay relaxed and do my own race. I always do well in the biggest races, and I'm going to surprise even myself this time. I'm going to really focus and do what do the best that I can. This race is my destiny, and I'm going to do wonderful for myself, my team, my family, and for the sport of cycling. The sky is the limit, and I'm about to blast off. That's kind of nine days
0: before the tour.
2: Nine days before the tour. And then the funny thing is here on July twenty-fourth, which was eight days before the end of the tour, because it ended on August the 2nd that year. I remember that because that was the anniversary of one of my best friends dying, um, my high school friends dying. So I always had that as a little motivator. Um, So I wrote this little sentence on the 24th of July. And I said, I can win the tour de France in 1998. Obviously that didn't come true, but dude, not far off. And, and I don't know if what I was writing, I actually believed myself or I was using it to kind of reinforce, but yeah, writing things down and having those goals, I think is a very important part for, for any athlete to have, even if they're lofty, write them down, look at them every single day and who knows, you know, they, they may come true.
0: Man, I'm grinning ear to ear. That's, um, that's, I'm so glad that you kept those. That's re that's really good. Um, Amazing, and then there you go—the power of manifesting your destiny. Um, what a great insight into you, Bobby, uh, and and a really great show. I feel um, that's been uh, it's been super interesting.
2: Yeah, this book is going right back in that box. Um, not sure I'm gonna. I'm not sure I'm prepared to read all those journals that I have in there because uh, later in my career I started writing a page a day. So who knows? That may be uh, a book one day.
0: You did say what you thought the name would be earlier in the show. I've it's it's escaped me now. What did you say? Uh, Was I saying no?
2: Trim off the peaks and fill in the valleys.
0: Exactly, exactly. Trim off the peaks and fill in the valleys. A journey by Bobby Jullrick. There you go.
2: And it's been quite a journey, and uh, it's not over yet.
0: It's not. And uh, and with that, I think uh, it's time to to wrap it up, Bobby. As always, a real pleasure.
2: Thanks, Gus, and thanks to TJ for joining us and putting me on the hot seat today.
0: And that's it. What a really in- interesting, uh, insightful show, Bobby. Uh, appreciate you your honesty. Appreciate you talking uh, to us and TJ, mate. Um, really good to have. The questions from someone inside um, the sport, and I think really open, honest questions from him as well, and really interesting insight as well. So I'm, it's been an absolute pleasure and absolute honor to to be on the show with the two of you. Um, to our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. I hope that you found that as enlightening and as, and as interesting as I did. You can find all of our past episodes, um, as well as a whole bunch of other really great cycling journal- journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can get it on SoundCloud or Spotify. Just type in uh, Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, that helps out a lot and we really appreciate the support. And, you know, tell your friends about us.
2: You can also get to us on social media at FizzoPod, P-Y-S-O-P-O-D on Twitter, at That Is Gus and at bobby.julik on Instagram for myself. Reach out to us there, give us some suggestions, some feedback. Yeah, and thank you very much everyone for listening. Just want to give a personal shout out to a close friend of mine who recently had a bike accident and broke his jaw. So uh, Jose, get back on the horse, my friend. As always, stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, And don't forget to put your socks and mask on.